Hi, my name is Roy. The Old Testament reading is found in Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where are you from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Ian. The New Testament reading is found in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Jonathan. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Mark 4, 35-41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us eyes to see Jesus this morning. We pray you'd open our ears, that we'd hear your voice, your word to us, and we pray that you'd open our hearts. That something would happen inside of us as your word would, would, would come in like the seed and produce good fruit in us. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You may be seated. Well, it's the first Sunday in Lent, and uh, if you're seeing all the purple around us here on the stage uh, before us, the purple reminds us something has changed. Every time the colors on the stage change, it means a, a, a time of the church year has changed. And uh, purple is meant to make us think of, of a couple things. One, the royalty of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus, but also uh, of repentance, because when we're confronted with Jesus' kingship, uh, it reminds us of the need for us to lower ourselves and to repent now, the point of all of this is not, you know, some sort of uh, being fussy or religious or being doing things technically correct and all of this stuff. The point of it is really to keep company with Jesus. Uh, Lent is a season of preparation toward Easter. It's not a standalone thing. Uh, the, the point is not, hey, what are you giving up for Lent? Oh, yeah, let's, let's renew on our New Year's resolutions, you know, let's kind of re-up, you know, I'm going to give up this again. No, it's a way of journeying with Jesus to the cross, and to the empty tomb. Uh, what happens when we only are people of the empty tomb, uh, we could sometimes forget that the gospel has something to say to us in our pain and in our sorrow. And we become people who only talk about victory. And actually, it's important because Easter is the last word. Easter is the, 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 the word of life that transforms. And yet... There is also this journey toward Easter, and so Lent may be a time for you to sort of give voice to your pain, to your question, to your sorrow. Uh, it can be a way to say, look, in this grammar of faith, there is room for sadness and all of this stuff. In fact, it's because we know Easter's coming that we're free to be honest about our pain. Amen? It's because we know there is mercy, we're free to ask for forgiveness, and on and on it goes. So I've, I have said, if you followed along on the New Life Downtown blog, um, you have seen maybe that we have invited all of you as a congregation to, uh, to maybe treat Lent as an invitation to fast. So it could be that you're going to give up something over the next uh, six weeks, and, and it could be something that actually would be meaningful. Uh, so not arbitrary, not random, but maybe it's an invitation to fast so that you have space um, to reflect on the Lord or on what he's doing. So an invitation to fast, and then we said an invitation to feast, which means let's say you're giving up TV or Facebook or social media or whatever, then your invitation is not just to fast from that, but then to feast instead on the Word of God or, or praying the Psalms or something like that. You've got all this time that's been freed up now, right? Uh, and a, a practical word about the fast bit, whatever you're giving up uh, during Lent, whatever you're fasting and turning away from, Sundays during Lent are meant to make you think of the great Sunday, Easter, that's coming. So whatever you're fasting from uh, during Lent, on those Sundays, you get to enjoy. So if you didn't know that, go have that chocolate or coffee or whatever today, you know, uh, or watch Downton Abbey tonight. Um, <laughs> a fast, a feast, and then the third thing that we're kind of inviting everyone to do is to take a step of faith. Isaiah said, look, the fast that the Lord has chosen is the kind that takes care of the poor and the needy. So some of you, the step of faith might look like serving or welcoming someone. What we're inviting our congregation into is something pretty simple. Take the step of faith and have a neighbor over for a meal this Lent. Uh, it sounds like it shouldn't be hard, but sometimes that can be really hard. Uh, pick a moment, find a time this, this six-week stretch and invite someone over. Okay. 
We're in part six here of a series through the Gospel of Mark. It's going to take us all the way through May. And we've been wrestling through this question of who is Jesus. So when you look at the art, if you're a visual person, you've got this disciple who's pointing at Jesus and saying, who is he, right? Uh, Mark was not probably at that scene. This is the scene of the the Last Supper. Mark was not one of the 12, but he was very likely one of the 70. Um, Could have been the, the Mark that was traveling with Peter in the book of Acts. So Peter might have been some of his source material. Whatever the case, Mark, by scholarly tradition, is the earliest gospel to be written down. It's also the sparsest. So John gives us all this theology about Jesus. Matthew gives us all of this Jewish history about Jesus. Luke gives us all these sermons from Jesus. Mark, he's just given us the story. And he's giving us the story in a really raw kind of way. There's, it's fast-paced. The word immediately shows up 42 times in Mark's gospel. It's Mark's way of keeping the story moving. And it's, it's possible that Mark is, is written sort of like a play. Okay, this weekend, uh, the Easter, the passion play that began at New Life 20 years ago or so called The Thorn is going to be at the Pikes Peak Center this weekend. And you can get uh, tickets and find out about all of that. But do you know Mark is in some ways the original passion play, the original drama that was set before an audience. And it's the kind of drama that invites you into the story. So maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not sure who Jesus is. I mean, I've heard all this stuff, but I'm not ready to believe. Mark says, that's okay. In fact, Mark shows you that if you don't believe, you're actually in good company because the disciples themselves didn't. And Mark says, if you're the person who says, well, I, I don't know about this Jesus. I, I was told all these things as a kid, but, but is he really this or is he really that? Mark wants us to sort of enter this journey and see with each episode how there's something new that's coming into light about Jesus that leaves people scratching their heads. I mean, Mark isn't hiding things from us. Mark is honest enough to show us that Jesus' own family thought the guy had lost his mind. That's not usually how you introduce a hero. By the way, his family all thought he was a nutter, you know. Mark wants us to know people were scratching their heads. We didn't know who, what kind of box this guy fit into. So we've journeyed through that. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus and a storm. Jesus as the master of the storm. We heard parts of the story read already. If you're in your Bibles, Mark 4, verse 37 is where we'll begin. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. Now, we have to stop right here and say that storms were a metaphor for something. You see, the, the, the Hebrews, the children of Israel, they, they hated the sea. And this might seem odd to you because some of their neighbors were really seafaring, but the Jews weren't those people. They didn't build ships. They didn't like water. In fact, if you're a literature sort of person and you're reading the Old Testament from a literature standpoint, you would notice very early on that water is always associated with something negative. The, early, the first chapter of Genesis, it says the Spirit of God hovered over the waters and the earth was formless and void. Waters are being used as a metaphor for chaos. Then the the next book of the Bible is Exodus, and there's a great sea, but that sea is the barrier between the people of God and the promised land. So now not only does the sea become a metaphor for chaos, it's a metaphor for an obstacle 
the thing that is stopping you from getting to where you want to go. Sea, storms. This continues in the prophet books. Daniel, if you've ever been one of those, you know, your brave soul to venture into reading the book of Daniel, the first few chapters are nice, they're stories, but then the, the latter half are these sort of bizarro kind of visions, right, or seemingly bizarro. But Daniel uses language of monsters rising out of the sea, you know, And you're like, wow, what is this? Is this like Poseidon or some sort of Greek myth? But it's the Jewish way of saying the sea represents chaos. It represents an obstacle to salvation. And actually, it represents evil itself. The sea is bad. It represents evil. It's where the monsters come from. So when Mark tells the story and he says, look, suddenly there arose a great storm and the waves were breaking into the boat, you can imagine his listeners thinking, Here we go. I knew it. And the first thing that maybe for us to sort of observe is to say that storms will come. Storms will come. If Mark really was writing his gospel, if this gospel by our best sort of scholarly guess was somewhere in the A.D. 60s, and likely this was sent to believers in Rome, what was going on in Rome in the A.D. 60s? What was going on? Well, there was an emperor by the name of Nero who was brutal toward Christians, brutal in his persecution toward them, turbulent times. Maybe this is Mark's way of saying, look, there are sometimes forces that come against you in life that seem like they are the devil himself. It seems like monsters rising out of the sea. And by the way, Rome was known for its fleet of ships, a metaphor that fit them perfectly. You are the monster coming out of the sea. Rome. You are the ones that oppose the people of God. You are the barrier that stands in the way. You are this this force of chaos and of disaster. And Mark is saying maybe to these Christians living in Rome, storms will come. It's going to feel like all hell has broken loose. Verse 38, but Jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They awoke him. Do you not care that we're perishing? Not only will storms come, but Mark says storms will challenge your faith. It will make you question. You know, I've heard people say that fear is a sin. The Bible never says that fear is a sin. It says that God doesn't give us a spirit of fear. It says that he doesn't want us to live in fear. But sometimes we have this funny thought in our head that to be a Christian is to live with no fear, baby. To fear is to be human. And there's a sociologist named Paul Ekman, and he sat, set out decades ago to demonstrate that emotions are just culturally conditioned responses. He thought that surely... Depending on whatever context you live in, emotions are just programmed by your parents or by society or by the books you read. And so he said, look, I can prove that this is true. Instead, after 40 years of research, he discovered the exact opposite, that there are universal emotions. And not only are there universal emotions, that there's a common trigger to each of those emotions. Every one of those emotions has a common universal trigger. Now, of course, there's variations of it in different cultures. There's variations of it in different families. But at its core, every emotion has a universal trigger. Isn't this fascinating? Ekman doubted his own findings that over time, he actually went to find tribes that had not had any interaction with even another tribe. 
that they were so remote, so on their own. And of course, his entry changes that, right? But he used pictures and stories around campfires to try to see, and it only confirmed the research. There's seven fundamental emotions, and they all, each one of them has the same universal trigger. What's the trigger for fear? It's a threat of harm. A threat of harm. Now, if you subscribe to some sort of view of evolutionary biology, you'd say, well, I see that that's there as a survival mechanism. If we didn't have the ability to perceive a threat, we'd never survive. Sure. But even if you think you subscribe to, say, a, a creationist paradigm, more pure, a, a pure creation paradigm, you might say, well, God gave us that fear, the, the wiring for fear, so that we can escape threats of harm. Both would be true, right? In other words, fear is not in itself bad. Somehow we've got it in, in our heads that to be afraid is to sin. But fear is part of being human. To be afraid is simply to say, something is threatening me. The disciples are afraid in the storm because something is threatening them. Have you ever been through an experience in life where you've felt a profound fear? A sense of, I don't know what's going to happen here. Holly and I could think back to a few years ago, several years ago now, maybe almost nine years ago, where the shooting happened at New Life. And we only had two kids at the time, and she can recall hiding under a desk with a two-year-old and, you know, or a two-and-a-half-year-old and a less-than-one-year-old, our two older girls, hiding under a desk. I can remember being frozen in the parking lot thinking, do I go in? Do I come out? What do I do? Profound fear. Fear that will challenge your faith. I can think of the time after our fourth was born, Jane and Holly went through a, a year of postpartum swirls of stuff, of feelings and emotions. She can recall that as a storm. Whatever the storm is in your life, storms have the capacity to make you question your faith. They make you doubt what's really going on. They make you question it. But I want to tell you that it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be afraid. The question is, what will you do with that fear? See, if you're afraid of a tornado, but you decide that you're going to go out and chase the storm, twister style, then that's probably, you know, fear has not really served its function. <laughs> but if you're afraid of the tornado and you go into the tornado shelter, it's like, oh, great, fear has done its job there. <laughs> it's good. Sometimes we think about fight or flight, right? Can I rise up and face this challenge, this threat of harm, or do I need to flee or run away? What if I don't have a choice? What if I can't change the circumstances in my life? What if I can't reverse the doctor's diagnosis? What if I can't fix my marriage? What if I can't solve the problem in my family? What if I don't know how to find another job? What if I can't solve this weight of debt? What if the storm is crushing all around you? And you don't know where to go. This is the point of Mark's story. Verse 39. And he awoke, Jesus awoke, and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Here's our first clue. And they were filled with great fear. More fear, different kind of fear, and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea 
obey him. Jesus is the master of the storm. This story has echoes of another older story that Jewish fathers and mothers used to tell their children. It's a story of a prophet named Jonah who was called to go and, and, and speak God's mercy to a very wicked people, but Jonah didn't want to go, and so he got in the ship. Think for a moment about the parallels. Pretend you're doing some literary analysis here. Compare these stories. Both involve a ship, right? Both involve a sudden storm, right? Both involve the prophet or man of God asleep. Jonah's asleep. Jesus is asleep. Both involve sailors who are terrified. <laughs> you know what's interesting to me about this is if you're a disciple hearing this story, you're thinking, wait, you're comparing us to pagan sailors? <laughs> who are they in the story? They're, they're as good as the pagan sailors. This is Mark's way of saying, I mean, imagine the church in Rome, you know, 20 years, 30 years into things, they're like, we're terrified by this persecution of Nero. I bet, I bet Peter and James and John would have never been afraid like this. And Mark's like, have I got a story for you? <laughs> Let me tell you about the day that the disciples were as scared as a bunch of pagan sailors back in the Jonah story. They don't come off so well in the comparison. But what about Jesus and Jonah? Jonah got in the ship to get away from God's purposes. Jesus got in to, go, to run toward it. Jesus is the obedient prophet. Jesus is the true and better Jonah. But the story gets better. It says, and they woke him up. Jesus rebuked the storm and said, be still. Those two Greek verbs, rebuked and be still, are the very same verbs that Mark records Jesus saying to the demon in Mark 1. This isn't Jesus sort of like a, a nature calmer, a horse whisperer, the storm, kind of like, let's just, let's just adjust the ship this way. Wow, he's such a smooth sailor of the stormy seas. This is Jesus confronting a storm as though it were a demon. Mark is trying to say something to us. Jesus isn't just the smoothest sailor you've ever known. Jesus has a power over evil and chaos itself. So that word rebuked is the same word that he uses over the demon. And that phrase, be still, earlier in Mark is translated as silence. Be calm. Be still. Now all of a sudden you can see the wheels spinning in the disciples' head. What is going on here? We thought, hey, don't you care that we're going to die? We just thought he was going to like commiserate with us. What's he doing standing up and rebuking the storm as if it were a demon and speaking to the, the, the seas as if they were a spirit? Well, what, what, who, who is this guy? And maybe as little Jewish kids, the disciples had to memorize Psalm 107. Maybe something from synagogue was awakening and then like, oh, remember that psalm? Psalm 107. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Something is happening here. The disciples are thinking, wait a minute. 
We've only heard that Yahweh has the power over the sea. Even Jonah says, I believe in the God who made the sea and the dry land. Jesus talks to it like he's the one who did. And the disciples are thinking, uh, guys, good teacher. We knew that. Um, he's got a lot of power, sort of like a prophet, but doing the things that only God can do? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We're in trouble now. Isn't it amazing, their response? It says, and great fear. The actual two words there, Jesus says, why are you afraid? It's like, why are you, why are you disturbed? But then when, when Mark says, when Jesus stood up and rebuked the waves, the disciples were terrified. Terrified. Like they were a little bit scared of the storm, now they're ter- but they're terrified of Jesus because they have no clue who this is. It's like watching movies, you know, like I, I can watch like a movie about an asteroid coming to Earth or, you know, or even Twister, sort of a natural disaster movie, maybe the San Andreas unrealistic movie, you know, but natural disaster, they're like, oh, okay, oh, wow, that's kind of fun, right? But I stay away from movies about like the paranormal because that is terrifying. That's like terrifying. I, I, I want to see like, oh my gosh, something worse is here. You have to think, this is what's happened to the disciples. They're in the ship. They're like, oh, a storm. Oh, no. And then Jesus rises up and starts talking to the storm. Like, oh, my gosh, this is even worse. Who is this guy? And he's in our ship. They're freaking out. And they realize, wait a minute. Jesus, the master of the storm? What does that mean? It means at least a couple things. For one, it means that To call Jesus the master of the storm means that you can't command him. You can't command him to command the winds and waves. See, the story opens with the disciples rebuking Jesus, don't you care? And it ends with Jesus saying, don't you believe? You can't command Jesus to command the winds and the waves. There's a certain kind of theology that floats around that says, that, you know, we can just sort of speak to things and we can, you know, our words have power. And all. Your words don't have power. Jesus has power. And he is the word of God. To say that you can start commanding things is to all of a sudden say, well, I am him. Or that I am somehow over him. But when you discover that the one with you is the highest authority there is, you realize, oh, I, I, I can't tell you what to do, can I? Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples for not commanding the storms to be still. This isn't a word of faith message of what Jesus is saying, well, the disciples, don't you know you had the authority within you to speak to the waves? That's not the point. It's not the point. To say that Jesus is the master of the storm means that you don't get to rebuke him for not making the storms go away. Sometimes we have a version of faith that says, if I really have faith, there would never be storms in my life. Or, if I really had faith, I could make the storm stop. Friends, there are times when you can't make the storm stop. So to believe in Jesus must mean something more than that. This isn't a magic trick. This isn't a way of using Jesus to make the storms in your life disappear. This is a statement about recognizing who Jesus is. 
So to say that he's the master of the storm is to say that we don't command him. But it also is the confidence that he will bring a sure and certain end to evil. To say that Jesus is the master of the storm is, to, is not just to say, okay, well, I don't get to command you, you command the storm. It's this confidence that says, he, you, you, Jesus, you will bring a sure and certain end to this. Our New Testament reading this morning was out of the book of Revelation, and it's this lovely verse about new heaven and new earth, and later on in verse 4, you know, no more tears, death will be no more, and you're like, great, so wonderful. And then there's this little phrase tucked in there in verse 1 and verse 2, it says, and the sea will be no more. And you're thinking, what? I had rather hoped that in heaven, in the new heavens, I would have a holiday by the sea. <laughs> what do you mean the sea will be no more? It's metaphor. And it's John's way of saying the very heart and source of evil will be broken. The very heart and root of all of your pain, of all of your sorrow, of all of the chaos in your life. Not just that the tears will be wiped away, but the sea will be no more. The very source of it, the thing that has been the grounds that has festered and fostered everything that is wrong with the world, it itself will be no more. And so Mark gives us Jesus right in the middle of that. Jesus, who is the ones the Psalms said, commands the winds and the waves. And Jesus, who John saw one day, will make the sea itself no more. This Jesus is here. Jesus, the master of the storm. We don't command him, but he will bring a sure and certain end to evil. When you think about this, it helps us think carefully again about fear. See, if fear really is the human response to a threat, what faith does is it doesn't eliminate any chance of you ever being afraid again, but what faith does is it shows you where to bring your fear. It shows you what to do with it. Okay, so there's a threat. Something's coming against my life, my family, my marriage, my job. What, what do I do? Faith says, have you found the one who's greater than the storm? Have you found the one who took it all? See, in one way, Jesus is like Jonah. Throw Jonah into the sea, the storm stops. Jesus is like the one thrown into the heart of darkness. Jesus, the one who on the cross took on himself the weight of all that is wrong and broken in the world. Jesus, the one who said to the storm, do your worst. And yet Jesus on Easter is the one who says, now be still. Now stop. No more. No more. No more. No more. You may never eliminate the trigger of fear, but you need not ever live in fear once you see Jesus. Once you see Jesus, you're saying, look, uh, there's a threat of harm all around me, <laughs> but I found the Savior. I found the master of the storm. I found the one who is greater. Ekman talks about our emotions. He says the only way you can get around your emotions is to reappraise the situation. As long as you keep seeing the situation this way, you will keep triggering that same emotion. Fear, fear, threat, threat, threat. And Ekman says at some point you've got to stop back and reappraise the situation. This is what faith does. 
Faith says, if all you see are, is the storm, you're going to have perpetual fear. But if you could step back and see that the one in the ship with you is greater than the storm, then you can have faith. What Jesus is trying to do is, is not to say to us, don't ever think that there is danger or harm. No, that, it's fine. It's there. But Jesus is saying, don't you realize who's with you? Who's with you? You know, in those sci-fi movies, sometimes the most terrifying phrase in the, in the movie is that when one of the characters realizes, he says, we are not alone in the universe. And you're like, ah! Right? It's such a terrifying phrase the moment that you first realize, oh my gosh, we're not alone in the universe. But isn't it amazing how a statement that is so terrifying can actually become incredibly comforting when you know who is with you? See, it's only terrifying. We're not alone in the universe. It's only terrifying because that's an unknown. Like, we're not alone. We don't know who this other alien force is, and they probably want our renewable energy. Why it's always about that, I don't know. You know? <laughs> Metaphor? Uh, But when you say, hey, this God, this one who's the master of the storm, it's not an unknown. He's not an unknown God. He's not a higher power or some force above. He's the suffering servant. He's the son of God who was tempted in every way and took upon himself our sin. Now, all of a sudden, when I say, hey, hey, you're not alone in the universe, it becomes the most comforting words of all. And now we say to someone, hey, in your pain, in your tears, you're not alone. Not because something unknown is there with you, but because Jesus himself is here. The same question Jesus posed to the disciples, the way he flipped their question. They said, don't you care? He says, don't you know? Don't you believe that I'm here? That's the same question for all of us. In the midst of the storm, in the midst of the fear that ravages your faith, that makes you turn, the question isn't, God, do you care? The question is, do you see that he's there? That he's here? The very master of the storm is here with you. Did you bow your heads this morning?